You may open your Bibles for an opening passage of Scripture to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32. The Lord has brought us to consider His holiness this morning. And while I have preached on holiness before, I will be preaching on it somewhat differently this morning. We are studying the attributes of God in order to know God. We are not studying the attributes of God as a primary purpose for us to oppose the perilous times in which we live. So the emphasis is going to be on His holiness and how He's made us holy because this is a transferable attribute of His with some reminders that He's called us to actively be holy in our lives. You know, children ask, if I were to see God, what does He look like? Well, if you were to see God, the glory of His presence would crush you into a feeling of death. It would reveal all the corruption that's in you. All the parts of you that want to do what is sinful and wrong would be exposed under the perfectly brilliant light of His holiness. When men saw God, they repented in dust and ashes like Job. They said like Peter, depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. They cried like Isaiah, woe is me. Woe! I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Well, they fall at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ like John in Revelation chapter 1 is dead. That is what it is like to see God. And that glory that would so overwhelm you and press you down and make you feel filthy is His holiness. And that would be meeting Him in our flesh. Now, brethren, we're going to meet Him in a glorified body with sanctified spirits. And it's not going to press us into the ground. We're going to enter into the joy of our Lord. Because He's made us holy. And that is going to be the emphasis of my preaching this morning. Not to crush you with the filthiness of your flesh, though I will remind you of it. But to rejoice in the holiness Jesus Christ has secured everlastingly for us. And that we were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy. Not that we should be holy actively, but that we would be, should be holy by Jesus Christ giving Himself a sacrifice for us. And today's themes are going to fit together very well. Because we in this condition, without a new man, cannot enter into the presence of God, for the foolish shall not stand in His sight. He hates all workers of iniquity. His holiness cannot look upon them approvingly. He must burn in His fire against sin. And yet, we have an open way into the presence of God, and baptism is going to make that declaration because our consciences are free, because Jesus Christ has paid for our sins that ordinarily separate us from Him. What does God look like? He is brilliant in His glory, but that glory is not His omnipotence as much as it is His holiness. It is His perfection from sin. It is is His absolute purity. 
It is his inviolate nature that cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. The absolute purity of God. He hates every corrupting, evil, sinful thing or or sinner that comes into his presence or that is anywhere in his universe. The holiness of God can be taught or it can be received as a terrifying doctrine, but it is rather the beauty of God. Amen. The Bible does not say worship God in the terror of holiness. It says worship God in the beauty of holiness. Right. And I am not making light of a subject that you know I have taken pains over the years to put great weight upon. Because I thank God when I was about 19 years of age, when the Lord struck me with a sense of His holiness, and Isaiah chapter 6 was one of those places that I shared with you last evening in the preparation for this day's assemblies, that when Isaiah saw the Lord, what did he see? He saw Him high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. And there were glorified beings there far greater than you or me, declaring not His omnipotence, not His independence, not His infinity, but His thrice holiness. And when they declared His thrice holiness, the pillars and the posts of that place shook, and it was filled with smoke. And as a 19-year-old boy, I was crushed by that picture from Isaiah 6, crushed in a wonderful way. And I thank the Lord for crushing a rebel with His precious Word, with the fire and hammer of His Word that broke me down and showed me this is who I am. Who are you? Because I knew that Isaiah had a better mouth than Jonathan Crosby. I don't hear any amens. Do you mean it about me, Frank, or yourself? Both of us. Thank you. Because Isaiah had a better... Isaiah was the prophet of God. And yet in the presence of God, his mouth was filthy in his sight. I want to tell you anything you think good about yourself, in the sight of God's holiness, it is filthy and corruptible, perverse and sick and full of putrefying sores, as the Bible describes it. You are nothing and your righteousnesses and His presence are menstrual rags. Isaiah 64 and verse 6. They're filthy and they stink. And they should be thrown away in His presence. But we've been made holy. And so we want to rejoice in that today and be thankful for it. It's not a terrifying doctrine. It's a beautiful one. It should be terrifying to sinners who want to continue in their sins. But it should be comforting and glorifying and beautifying to our blessed God and to our religion and to baptism when we properly understand what Jesus has done for us. It is His distinguishing and beautifying trait. There is, There are no creatures proclaiming love, love, love in heaven. It's holy, holy, holy. Right. Old Testament, New Testament, you go to whatever book you want to go to. It's His holiness that makes God distinctly different from all other deities and all other creatures. The heavens themselves are not clean in His sight, the Bible says. Because even the angels were cast out of heaven because of their sin. Holiness is moral. It is religious and spiritual perfection and purity, which you have never seen yet. And yet we participate in it by the natures that we have by our new birth, 
that are said to be created in righteousness and true holiness. Not ceremonial holiness, not professing holiness, but true holiness. I've been twice born. If you've been twice born, there's a part of you that wants to live a holy life for God and is able to live a holy life for God, created in true holiness. Thank you, Lord. The purest person you've ever met, though impressive to you, because being with a pure person whose motives are pure and their affection is pure, their thoughts are pure, is a very comforting and good person to be around, but they're nothing at all compared to God. His holiness makes His goodness better. Because His goodness is judged and ruled by His holiness. So His goodness is only toward good persons, good objects, good conduct, and never toward the wicked. His holiness governs everything that He does. It makes everything better about our God. It makes His power purer. Holiness makes His love perfect. Holiness makes His presence incredible because it beautifies and glorifies all that we know to be God. What makes gold best? Now if we pop off our rings and look on the inside, I don't think I want to tell you that one. You know, we might see 10K. That means 10 carat. That means 40% gold. And the rest, you don't want to know. You can buy it in a gravel yard. If it says 14 carat, you know, then you're up 55% gold. But what's that expression that we use for real gold that isn't mixed up with anything? 24 carat gold is pure gold. 24 karat gold does not have any other imperfections in it. It's going to be soft. It's going to be malleable. You can take it and bend it because gold is a soft, precious metal. But 24 karat, what makes gold best is when it's 24 karat and there's no impurities in it. What makes God best? His holiness because there is no impurity in Him at all of any kind. This is our God's holiness. What makes a complexion best? When you come up to a person and they have a perfect complexion, The skin is incredible that God made. The shape, the sharp outlines of their features. It's the lack of blemishes. It's the lack of moles. It's the lack of age spots. It's the lack of everything else that comes because that's a pure complexion and they're beautiful. What makes chastity beautiful? What makes a girl beautiful in her chaste conduct? Her speech, her dress. Her thoughts, her actions toward others is pure. And when you meet her, you know that you're in the presence of nearly an angel. And so we use expressions like that for the holy angels applied to a girl because she's pure. She dresses pure. She talks pure. She looks with her eyes pure. She doesn't flirt even with her eyes. She doesn't flirt with her body motions. She's respectful. She's demure. She's reserved. Her chastity is beautiful because it has no flaws. There's no flies in her ointment. Character is delightful when it doesn't have flies in it. You know? And I know. 
We want to be held in reputation for wisdom and honor. But every time we allow a little folly into our life, it's like letting a dead fly into perfume. It sends forth a stinking savour. It adds stink to what should be beautiful. And so there, there are some that are had in reputation for wisdom and honor to a degree that we have to say at times, well, that's Jonathan Crosby. Or that's Paul Crosby. Meaning, well, they do have those weaknesses. But oh, character when it has no blemishes. Character when it has no flies. Character when it has no faults. Lord, help us to see that. This is our God. This is His holiness. His complexion, His purity, His power, His character, it's all pure and it's completely free from any imperfection. Holiness is God's spiritual perfection or purity. He is free from all contamination of sin and evil in motives, in anything, in conduct, in works, past, present, or future. He's free from any thing like that. He's morally and spiritually perfect and unsullied, possessing infinite moral perfections as found only in the God that we're describing from the Bible. He is totally conformed to what we call the will of God. His, the holy will of God directs everything. He is entirely devoted to God if a person is holy. This is sinlessness. It's being sanctified. Sanctification is a big, long theological word. It is in the Bible. But sanctify means to consecrate. Both words mean to set apart and make holy for the use of God. To sanctify something is not a complicated concept. It simply means this is not for worldly use. This is for God's use. It is set apart to be used by God for holy purposes. That's to sanctify something. And we've been sanctified. That's why we're called saints. A saint is a sanctified person. A sanctuary is a sanctified place. It's a person that's going to live a holy life for God, or it's a place that's used for the holy worship of God. And the Bible teaches us about our sanctification. I've taught you in the past the five phases of sanctification. Holiness is God's infinite freedom from and infinite hatred for any and all evil from any quarter or being. And that does leave us full of hope because Jesus Christ paid for all of that evil from us fully and finally once for all by his sacrifice on the cross. Deuteronomy 32.4, though it does not have the word holy in it, helps us understand his holiness. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment, a God of truth, and without iniquity, just and right is he. God is holy. There's no iniquity with him. Look at Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 26 as it describes the Lord Jesus Christ, totally free from sin. Hebrews 7.26, For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. That's holy. Separate from sinners. Undefiled as it describes the Lord Jesus Christ in Hebrews 7 and verse 26. He is of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. God cannot look on a sinner or sinful actions and approve them. He cannot look on them with any favor or acceptance. 
The Lord sees every evil action done in the universe and always has. And He does look upon them, but He does not look upon them with any favor or approval because He is holy. Since you're in the book of Hebrews, look at chapter 1 and verse 9, as it also describes the Lord Jesus Christ. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. The Lord Jesus Christ is preeminent in heaven, and he is the firstborn of every creature, because he loved righteousness and hated iniquity. This describes holiness for us. Look at Proverbs chapter 6 and see that God hates six things, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. And we find ourselves in this short description so easily. By nature, by nature, but not our new nature. Proverbs 6 and verse 16, these six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, and heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. Three of those have to do with the mouth. And God says he hates them. Yea, they are an abomination unto him because he is holy. The Bible emphasizes God's holiness over his other attributes. Ordinarily and most of the time. Let let me show you some of those examples. Exodus chapter 3. The first occurrence we have of the word holy in the Bible. Exodus chapter 3. Moses is on the back side of the desert and he meets God. He meets the Lord Jehovah who gives him his name, I am that I am. But remember what took place before God spoke from the burning bush and gave Moses his name. Exodus 3, 5. God called to Moses out of the midst of the bush in verse 4, and Moses said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither. Don't get any closer. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet. For the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Taking your shoes off was a sign of humility. Men of means and men with money wore shoes. And the more means or money you have, the better shoes you wear. That's still true today. To be in the presence of another man, and there are Bible examples of it, and I don't want to take much time, just take my word for it, then go home and check me out. But to take your shoes off was a statement of humility in the presence of another person. And God told Moses, get your shoes off because you're standing on holy ground and don't come any closer. That's us by nature. Don't come any closer. But do you know what we can do now? Boldly into the presence of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Draw nigh to God. And what's he going to do? Tell you don't get any closer? Or is he going to run to you? Draw nigh unto God, and He will draw nigh unto you. James chapter 4. That is a huge change. How did it take place? The holy God poured out His holy wrath on His holy Son, Jesus. 
who bore all our sins and washed them far away and cast them into the depths of the sea. And as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed them from us. So that when we come nigh unto him, we are holy in his sight. And so many verses in the Bible tell us wonderful things like this. The, the adjective holy is used for the Holy Spirit as part of his name. Notice God did not say, take your shoes off because you're standing on loving ground. Love has its place, but I'll tell you it's governed by his holiness. Right. Men love to go to First John and say God is love. Yes, but they had to get several chapters into the epistle before they found that. If they'd have gone to the first chapter, they'd have found out that God is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. And if we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Amen. Because if only a holy person can have fellowship with God. Right. And it starts with holiness. Holiness governs His love. God cannot love an unholy object because His holiness will not allow it. He must hate every unholy object. And He does. Amen. You say, well, how can He ever love sinners? Because He chose them in Christ Jesus before the world began, that they would be holy. Ephesians 1.4 tells us that in those words. And we believe it. How about the Holy Scriptures? They're not called the merciful Scriptures or the mighty Scriptures. It's called the Holy Scriptures. You know, we go through the Scriptures and we see holy angels, holy people, holy place, holy covenant, holy hill, holy temple, holy name, as it describes God. Where did God, where was God worshiped in the Old Testament? In the holiest of all. There was the holy place, which was the first two thirds of the tabernacle, where the priests went every day. But if you read Hebrews 9 last night, you were reminded the last third had a veil there, and only the high priest, and only once a year got in there, and then he had to have blood, or he would have been incinerated in the presence of God. And then, guess what? He had to do it again the next year. And they had to do it again the next year, which reminded them all that the access to God was not open. But guess what? We're there right now. Amen. And we can run there anytime we want to go in the very presence of God. Yes. Because the blood was brought once by the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. Jerry, thank you for making mention of so many of those things in your prayer this morning. Amen. Praise God. Yes. You read Hebrews 9 and 10 and understood it. And I... I rejoice. God has named the Holy One 30 times just in the book of Isaiah. What other attributes are mentioned like His holiness? Look at Isaiah 57 and verse 15. His holiness, His purity from sin. And yet we are so unholy. And we live among an unholy people. And we live among unholy Christians. Because they've given up on living holy lives. Righteousness is his legal correctness. Holiness is his moral or spiritual perfection. Holiness is extreme and intolerant. It hates any and all evil and any moral imperfections in anything heaven even is not clean. Isaiah 57 and verse 15 puts it this way, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity whose name is holy. A name for God? Holy. Hannah would pray, there is none holy as the Lord. I dwell in the high and 
holy place, with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. And you contrite and humble ones this day, I tell you to revive your souls that God dwells with you. Because you are as holy as He wants you to be legally, and you're able to come by the Lord Jesus Christ because there can be no addition to the holiness Jesus Christ obtained for you. There's nothing lacking. He doesn't barely let you in. You may go with boldness, as the Bible tells us. Just run into His presence. Every time you pray, O Lord God, my Father, you're in the presence of the Holy God. You're standing right there, and the Lord Jesus Christ is interceding for you. His holiness covers you. It has covered you since before Adam was created. Now, if you haven't been living a holy life when you're standing there before Him, you need to say some things first, and that's to confess your sins. Because He's grieved with you. That doesn't mean He's going to cast you down to hell. That means He's going to spank you until you ask for confession of those sins. That's what you should do. Because He's holy. What makes God glorious? Look at this in Exodus 15 and verse 11. When Moses and Miriam were celebrating on the shores of the Red Sea as they danced around and over the waterlogged bodies of some that made it out of the Red Sea, dead of course, Exodus 15 and verse 11, in the middle of their song, Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Who is like you? His holiness was evident in destroying the Egyptians who were an unholy people and had worshipped idols and had said through their leader, Pharaoh, who is the Lord, that I should serve him. You know, when Aaron compromised with a golden calf, the Levites were called forth to kill their brothers, their friends, their companions, and family members that had been involved in that false worship. And it is described as consecrating themselves to the Lord. That's God's holiness being matched in an ordination service, the likes of which you haven't been around in a while. Like 4,000 years. What an ordination service for those Levites. Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, they offered strange fire. They thought they would modify God's religion with some casual worship. They went into the presence of God, swinging their censers. It was the right place. It was the right God. They were the right men. God burned them up just like that. And then he told Aaron and their brothers, Aaron's other sons, don't you dare mourn for them. Don't you dare rend your clothes. Don't you dare take your miters off. They don't deserve any mourning. That's the holiness of God. You say, how can I ever approach unto him if God would burn up his own priest named Nadab and Abihu? Because a priest has already entered into the presence of God that didn't take strange fire with him. He took the blood of God's own son. Why in the world do you keep pushing, trying to push me into a ditch? And why are you in a ditch yourself? Get up there in the high center part of the road and let's run to glory. He's opened it up for us. Look at Numbers chapter 15. Numbers 15. This is one of my favorite sections in the Bible about holiness. 
When I preached this to you a few years ago, I brought you a piece of blue fringe. Do you remember? A piece of blue fringe. What in the world did we have a piece of blue fringe for? Because in Numbers chapter 15, the sacrifices are given for the sins of ignorance. And then that ends in verse 29. Then in verse 30, the sins of presumption. That's when we sin and we know better. You know, we can do things wrong that displease God because we don't know that displeases God. But when we know something is wrong, then we do it. It's a sin of presumption. And those are far worse sins. And so God gives the sacrifices for sins of presumption beginning in verse 30. That's verses 30 and 31. Then God immediately gave them an opportunity to learn about presumptuous sins. A man was found picking up sticks on the Sabbath day. That seems like such a minor offense. He was out picking up sticks on the Sabbath day. He needed to get breakfast cooked, you know? He'd forgotten to pick up sticks the previous day on Friday. He wanted to cook some eggs and bacon. Nope, no bacon in Israel. But he No eggs either. But he wanted to fix breakfast. And so he went out and picked up sticks, and they put him in hold. That's a detention center for a moment until Moses went to the Lord and said, what do we do with this guy that was picking up sticks on the Sabbath day? Stone him. Stone him. Verse 35, the Lord said unto Moses, the man shall be surely put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones without the camp. And they did it, and he died before the Lord. And then God told Moses, I want you to tell the children of Israel that they sow a blue fringe, a ribbon of blue, it's in verse 38, on the borders of all their garments, that they put a fringe on their garments, a ribbon of blue. And it shall be unto you for a fringe, verse 39, that ye may look upon it, remember all the commandments of the Lord, and do them, and that ye seek not after your own heart and your own eyes, after which ye used to go a-whoring that ye may remember and do all my commandments and be holy unto your God. I am the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. I am holy, you should be holy, and this is a reminder of holiness. All of their garments had this blue fringe, so that whenever you saw the blue fringe and you saw it all the time, and you saw it on all your clothes and you saw it on everyone else's clothes, it was a reminder, don't do things your way, do things my way, because I'm God and I am holy. And remember the man that picked up sticks on the Sabbath day, he was stoned to death for it. Remember everyone else that died by not being holy. That's a serious religion. But we have blue covering us from top to bottom. Because the Lord Jesus Christ secured it for us. Isaiah the prophet, though a a prophet of God, saw the and felt the wickedness of his own speech when he was in the presence of the Lord. Oh, and there's so many other examples in the Bible. Some of them I've mentioned to you briefly. How in the world could God reign on David's parade when David was moving the Ark of the Covenant? Because that they did not move the Ark of the Covenant the way God had said on the shoulders of the priests on staves that went through the rings that were on the corner. Can you believe that they lifted up that Ark and they put it on the a new ox cart and there were rings on the corner that they didn't use? And though David was out there dancing and celebrating like David would celebrate when he was going to do something special for the Lord, the Lord killed Uzzah when he reached back. To, trim, to steady that trembling ark. We've been over that story so many times, but I want you to realize God is holy. 
And this holiness of God beautifies him. We read our newspapers and we go on the internet and we look at the Drudge Report and other places and we read about what the courts of our nation are doing. We read about what the highest office in our nation does and what the other higher offices in our nation does and we are appalled because there's no holiness. We hear what men are preaching in pulpits. Or we, uh, it's storytelling. It's not really preaching. It's storytelling and we are appalled because there's no holiness. We look at clothing and attire on people, especially when we realize there's no holiness. We listen to the words that come out in public speeches and we know there's no holiness. We're, there's just a lack of holiness everywhere. And so we delight in the Lord our God as we think upon Him from these examples in the Bible. You know, God's holiness is seen the best on Calvary. What would cause the Lord of glory to so bruise and punish His Son, Jesus Christ, but His holiness that was burning against sin. How could God that said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased at his baptism, just three and a half years later, desert him and forsake him and turn the Romans and the Jews together against him and the devil against him and it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased God to bruise his son Jesus Christ. Because to punish and to rip a sinner pleases God because it pleases His holiness. But Jesus was there in our place. So God has no purpose to bruise us in that sense. The only bruisings He ever gives us now are the bruisings of chastening us. Loving discipline that we might be partakers of His holiness. holiness. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 10 and 14 Why does God chasten us? That we will be partakers of His holiness. That's practically. So that we will practically change our lives to live holy lives that would please Him. Romans 12 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. After what God has done for us, it is reasonable for us to give back to Him a holy life. And without holiness, and men are not prone to holiness, it's impossible to please Him. Look at Joshua chapter 24, where Joshua's final words are given to us in the book bearing His name. Joshua 24 and verse 19. Joshua has said in verse 15, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people said... God forbid, in verse 16, that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. But Joshua knew what those stiff-necked people were going to do because he had witnessed what they had done under Moses. And so look what he says about them in verse 19. Joshua said unto the people, Ye cannot serve the Lord. Don't play games with the Lord. Joshua said to the people, Ye cannot serve the Lord, for He is an holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. And then he goes on to explain exactly what he meant. If ye forsake the Lord and serve strange gods, then he will turn and do you hurt and consume you. After that, he hath done you good. It doesn't matter how much good he's done you. It doesn't matter that he's given you the land of Canaan under my leadership. He is going to turn and do you hurt. 
Because He is a holy God, and He is a jealous God, and He is not going to put up with your stiff-necked rebellion against Him. This is the holiness of God. But He poured out all that on the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't see God now, and you won't see Him then without holiness. But you know, the Bible says, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. That is our spiritual resurrection. When Jesus Christ said, Live! And we live in a new man. We're born again. We're regenerated. We're quickened into new life. So I have a man inside me, created in true holiness. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. And so we can please God. You know, there's so much more that could be said about this glorifying, beautifying attribute of God and its and His hatred of sin and His perfection without blemish or spot. But He's made us that way. And so let us learn from God's holiness as we want to know Him. Let us learn what we can from it. That first of all, we should humbly take our shoes off and come into His presence and worship Him as a holy being. Hebrews chapter 12 And verses 28 and 29, I quoted to you this morning, but I want you to see them. This is how we should worship a holy God. This is how we take our shoes off. We come with shoes on because we're not standing on holy ground like Moses at the burning bush or Joshua after his fiasco at the city of Ai. When the captain of the Lord's host appeared to him and told him the same thing, Hebrews 12, 28, Wherefore, we, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, that's because the Old Testament was moved. The Old Testament way of worship was thrown away. That's what Hebrews 12 is all about. This form of worship that we're in right now is never going to change. It's the final form of worship. We're going to be glorified in heaven and do it a little better, but it's the same form of worship. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace. Let us take the grace that God has given us and use it, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. It is not that we accept God or accept Jesus. It's God accepting us that is of the preeminent importance. Does God accept us? And He accepts us when we worship Him reverently and with godly fear. So that is why we are old-fashioned Baptists. That's why we dress the way we do. That is why we act the way we do. That is why we keep our services on the Lord's Day formal. Because we want to worship Him reverently. As a high and lifted up holy being. With godly fear. We don't want to come in here foolishly, presumptuously, profanely, lightly, or by all means... Not casually. There's nothing casual about his worship when the Bible says this in the New Testament. Because our God is a consuming fire. That's quoted out of Deuteronomy, but the Apostle Paul is telling us it still applies in the New Testament. We want to gloriously rejoice in song and praise about his holiness. And that's why we sang this morning, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. We want to see the cross. And our Lord Jesus Christ's suffering there is the price to make us holy. That's what gives the cross its value, is that Jesus stood between us and God and made us holy by the sacrifice of himself for our sins. And more on that in the second assembly today. 
We want to remember that we have a new man created in true holiness. That's the third time I've mentioned it to you today. It's Ephesians 4 and verse 24. And we want to oppose this generation. Look at Isaiah chapter 30 for an example of this generation of Christians. Remember, this is the people of God, Isaiah chapter 30. These are not the Egyptians, Philistines, or Hittites. These are the Israelites. This is God's church. Notice what happened then, and then I'll show you what is happening now. And those of you that have been out and about and listened and seen and heard, you know that the Christians that are out there are no longer holy. They are profane. They are unholy. They're casual. They don't really care about the morality of God. Look at their attire on their women and their assemblies. It's ridiculous. Listen to what comes out of the pulpit. Listen to the stories. Joel Osteen will not, will not, and has not started a sermon without telling a joke. And he'll tell you right off the bat, this is the way I get started. Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 11. I mention him because he's called America's pastor. There isn't anything pastoral about him. Isaiah 30 and verse 11. Get you out of the way. I'll back up so that you can get the... Let's get it back all the way back up to verse 9. This is the rebellious people. And this is the church. This is the rebellious people. Lying children. Children that will not hear the law of the Lord. They don't want to hear what they're supposed to be doing. Which say to the seers, see not. And to the prophets, prophesy not unto us right things. Speak unto us smooth things. And Joel's as smooth as they come. Prophesy deceits. Tell us some lies. They make us feel better. This is Now this is what I want. Verse 11. Get you out of the way. Turn aside out of the path. Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. Change our worship. It is too boring and too old-fashioned and too holy. Get you out of the way. Don't stay in the way of the old days. Get out of it. Turn aside out of the path of God. Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease. We don't want to hear preaching about holiness. So come over to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we're living in the fulfillment of it in the New Testament. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Brethren, help me, and children, young men, when we're gone, keep our assembly sober, reverent, holy, worshiping God in the beauty of holiness. Don't you follow the world. They're going to hell. And their worship is hellish. It doesn't tell us in the New Testament to worship God casually. It tells us to worship Him reverently with godly fear. Second Timothy chapter 3, it tells us about a new brand of Christians that would arise. And it, it describes them in the last word of verse 2. They are unholy. They're disobedient to parents in that verse. They're blasphemers. Look at the last part of verse 3. They're despisers of those that are good. If you try to live good and live holy and preach holy, they're going to tell you you're legalistic, old-fashioned, too picky. They're traitors. They're lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. They have a form of godliness, 
They call it religion. They don't even call it a church anymore because it's so far from a church, and they want you to know that before you ever enter the door that it's not going to look like a church. So they get rid of the word church in so many cases. And Paul told Timothy, from such turn away. They have a form of godliness, but they deny the power of it. They deny that God kills men like Nadab and Abihu for offering a slightly modified form of worship by doing something different. We're not even told what it was because God doesn't even want us to know what they did differently in offering the incense before the Lord. Right. You come over to chapter 4, verse 3. It's the same lesson. This is, this is one of the most fantastic, this is the most important prophetic passage in the Bible for you. 21 verses describing the state of affairs in Christendom today. It starts at verse 1 of chapter 3 and it runs through the fourth verse of chapter 4 and there's one lesson and you know some of the verses in the middle and you've been taught those verses in a vacuum. You have learned them as sound bites and memorized them as sound bites, not really realizing they were part of a 21 verse single lesson about the perilous times of a degradation of Christianity. Verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. They don't want to hear preaching about holiness or the attributes of God or boring things like that. They want to be taught Joel's book, I Declare. His new hot book is I Declare. He has 31 statements for you to declare each day when you get up, and those things are going to happen in your life. I wonder if there's a woman dressed in black on the front with a pointed hat, and she's got a pitchfork. You know, what, is, what kind of incantation is that? I declare right. that if you declare something, that's going to happen to you. Now, I've heard charismatics do that, and of course, Joel and his daddy came out of the charismatics and were charismatic-like, but they're doing it to 45,000 Baptists down there in Houston, Texas, and spreading it across the country through every Christian bookstore, which caters to little women, little silly women. What does that mean? It it's in verse 6 right here. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with divers' lusts. What's a silly woman? A vulnerable, weak, ignorant, and easily deceived woman. They go into Christian bookstores, and there's this big setup right there. As soon as they come in the door, and there's grinning Joel with his pastoral assistant, his wife, and they're selling a book, I Declare. And they flip open its pages, and wow, I can make my marriage better by getting up in the morning and declaring it. My marriage is better! Then her husband slaps her. It's just all ridiculous. It's all a lie. Because the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Joel never preaches doctrine, let alone sound doctrine. He doesn't preach any doctrine. It's just feel-good storytelling. How many of you, you know, don't... I've watched him and I've listened to full sermons because I do it for spiritual entertainment from time to time to remind me how convicted I ought to be about the perilous times. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. They want someone that will scratch the lusts of their flesh and their ears and give them something pleasant to hear. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. That is where we are today. Men have turned away from the holiness of God. This holy God chose you before time to be holy. Ephesians chapter 1. This holy God made you holy and without blemish by Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 5. This holy God has given you a nature that is truly holy. 
Ephesians chapter 4. This holy God is going to change your vile body into a holy body like that of the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 3. The death of Jesus Christ should be redoubled to you in its value and merit by considering God's holiness that was secured by it. For you, we're holy. In the sight of God, we're holy. And He sanctifies everything that we do when we sin. It only interrupts our fellowship with Him. It doesn't change our status in heaven. We do not have a colored marker put beside our name in the book of life that this person sinned again after they were converted. There's nothing like that done. We simply have a broken fellowship because our sins have separated us from God. And if we repent, He will abundantly pardon. For His ways are not our ways and His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways and thoughts are higher than ours and He forgives us far more easily than we forgive one another. We should have holiness in our lives. This is a transferable attribute of God. He has transferred some of this to us by giving us a holy nature. And He says, because I am holy, you ought to be holy. Leviticus 19.2, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Be ye holy as I am holy. For I, the Lord your God, am holy. Because He's holy, He wants us to be practically holy. He's made us legally holy for the presence of God. But He wants us to be practically holy. I just showed you from 2 Timothy 3.2 that we live in an unholy generation of Christians and it is said to be unholy there in that second verse. We're holy in all four phases and God's called us to be holy in the fourth phase, which would make all of us, which would make us being holy in all five if we are living His holiness. He's called us to it. Thank you, Lord, for that. Look at Second Peter chapter three. If you get the proper vision of what's coming to this world, then nothing in it should keep you from being holy. Second Peter chapter three. Verse ten, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Now verse 11, Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? That's all you have to do is think about what's coming. God is going to burn everything up. Everything is going to melt with fervent heat. There is nothing in this world that's going to be left. You're going to stand naked before God. The heavens and the earth are going to flee away from the face of Him that sits on His throne of judgment. And we will give an account for our lives of everything that we have done in the body. Seeing that this is going to happen, that all these things don't matter, they should not affect us. They should not attract us. They should not distract us. They should not deceive us nor discourage us. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? What kind of lifestyle should you have? Should you be getting pleasure from their entertainment? Should you be worried about their toys? Should their friends be your friends? Because to be a friend of the world is the enemy of God because God is holy and the world is unholy. It's that easy. Verse 12, looking for. This is what you're supposed to be looking at. Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. 
There's a question mark there because the question was asked in verse 11, how are you going to live in light of these facts that are most certain and coming soon? Verse 13, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. And what single word that's four letters long would replace verse 14 of how you ought to live. Holy. Be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. If you don't have a spot, then you're pure. If you're blameless, then you're holy. And we're to be diligent because this is what's coming. And do you know what? You have a little lie, you have a lying heart inside and the world lies to you every day. Do you know how they lie to you? They never mention God whatsoever. All they tell you is you need this and you need this and look at this. Look at the lifestyles of the rich and famous and look at this actress and look at that actor in the magazines, on the internet, on television, wherever you go. It's all, all these little tinsel things and soap bubbles are putting out before you. Your heart agrees with it and the devil comes along and does everything he can to discourage you. He throws fiery darts at your heart that cause you to doubt whether it, whether it's worth it to live like a conservative, old-fashioned, Baptist, apostolic, New Testament Christian. And so the combination just shakes you because inside you're lusting after the things of the world. The world is begging you to participate with them and telling you that it is oh so wonderful and the devil is looking, making you look at this little church can't possibly have the truth and life is so boring when you live like a Christian, the devil tells you, okay, you have a choice. Do you want to believe these three, you, the world, and the devil, or do you want to believe God who put it in writing? And something's going to happen to this world very soon. And this is why the holiness of God should affect us. The holy God is coming in the person of the holy Lord Jesus Christ. The devils knew he was holy. You want to talk about the emphasis of holiness? When the devils met the Lord Jesus Christ, they did not fall down at his feet and say, We know who thou art, the loving one of God. We know who thou art, thou art the holy one of God. Art thou come to torment us before the time? Oh, I love my Savior. No one preaches a Savior like that anymore. Joel doesn't know that Savior. He's got another Jesus. You should hear Joel defend all the sodomites in his congregation. Do you know what Jesus would do to a congregation of sodomites? What would he preach on? I declare. He has a few declarations to make. You say, you're picking on Joel way too much. I like Joel. Well, good for you. Go listen to him. He's a false teacher of the highest order. And he's the most perfect example in our generation of a false teacher. And really, the only people that listen to him are silly women and men who have as much estrogen as they do. Because any normal man could not handle him for more than five minutes without wanting to punch that grinning face. And he creeps into houses through that television and through those books and leads captive silly women to a degree that Paul could not even have comprehended when he wrote those words. Oh, brethren, it's so exciting to think about being practically holy for the Lord. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4. I'm about done. I don't need to be long. I just want you to be excited about his holiness. I want you to remember him. He is a holy God. But... 
I don't want you to fear His holiness because I want you to rejoice in what Jesus Christ did for us in light of His holiness. And we're going to have more of it in the second service, which will be the better stuff on that particular point because we're going to thank God today for Jesus Christ dying for us, being buried and rising again for us. And we're all going to do it with the young lady that's going to do it literally. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is powerful. Verse 1 tells us that, tells the Thessalonians that Paul was beseeching them by the Lord Jesus that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. What I've taught you, Thessalonians, I want you to do more and more of it on how to please God. You know what commandments we gave you, verse 2. Verse 3, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification. See, it's to be holy, that ye should abstain from fornication. What does it mean to be holy? What does it mean to be sanctified? Don't fornicate. You can't have sex with anyone but your wife. That's what it means. That's what it says. That every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. That's keeping your body. That's keeping your bodily male member sanctified and holy. Verse 5, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. Verse 7, for God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. See, this is sanctification. This is the will of God. This is how we please God. God is holy. He's made us legally holy in Christ. But now he asks us, while you're in the world for a few years, will you live a holy life like I am holy? Will you live a holy life to please me? Can you, in the midst of a filthy, corruptible, profane, unholy generation, live a holy life for me? What an opportunity we have. We can. We can do it here. We can do it at home. We can do it in front of the computer. We can do it in front of the television. We can do it with our speech. We can do it with our thoughts. We can do it in our clothing. We can. We should. We must be holy. Without which... No man shall see the Lord. Hebrews 12, verse 14. We can. This is an exciting passage. Verses 1 through 8 is sex. Verses 9 and 10 is brotherly love. Verses 11 and 12 is an honest, transferable skill. And there you go. You've got three categories of how to sanctify your life and be holy. And then Paul talks about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in verses 13 through 18. That's an exciting subject. Sanctification and being holy. James 1 would tell us that pure religion and undefiled before... I like those words. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. To visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Let's hate the world! The more we can hate the world, the more we love God. The more we hate the world, the more God loves us because God hates the world. And if we love the world, the love of the Father is not in us. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the fashion thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. This is what holiness should mean to us. God is holy. It is his beautiful attribute. It gives him the perfect complexion, the perfect character. It purifies his power. There's no blemish or fault or spot with him. 
And he's made us holy through Christ, and he calls us to be holy in our practical lives. And we can and will be. But as we do it, the world's going to think us strange that we no longer run to the same excess with them. Some family members, some close friends, some colleagues at work, they're going to call you strange. You're weird. You're legalistic. You're too far out. You're extreme. You're strange. That's the Bible word. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yes. I know I look different from this world because God has saved me out of this world. He is going to burn this world up and I want to be His child that lives faithfully and obediently for Him while He's left me here. Shouldn't be surprised. The warnings about ungodly men are throughout the pages of Scripture, especially the New Testament, especially Second Peter and Jude. Holy living is an ancient landmark that we want to preserve. God rightfully and repeatedly calls for us to be holy. God tells women, after he condemns women in 1 Timothy chapter 2 for being the ones in the Garden of Eden that showed their weakness of character, they first of all, they were made second. Second of all, they fell to the devil's lie. This is 1 Peter 2, verses 11 through 14. And then if a woman were to lose hope, Paul adds on this verse, notwithstanding... Wow. Women, my sisters, my dear sisters, my daughters, my wife, my mothers in Christ, notwithstanding, in spite of all that that was just said in four verses, notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in holiness and sobriety and godliness with charity. First Timothy 2.15, notwithstanding, in spite of what they've done, they'll be saved in childbearing, How does childbearing save women? The childbearing of one of your sisters named Mary who gave birth to the Lord Jesus Christ. And how do you know that that childbearing was for you? If they continue in charity and holiness. Lord, forgive me. If they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Wow, what a text. Women, you should memorize that one. Because when you look at what Paul said there in verses 11 through 14, it's pretty tough. But it's all covered with the Lord Jesus Christ. And how did he come? By way of the cursed childbearing of Eve through Mary. The seed of the woman came to rescue both women and men, even our Lord Jesus Christ. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ, have been baptized into his death and burial and his resurrection to live a new life. And that's what we'll take up in our second assembly. May God bless the preaching of his word. May we remember all the days of our lives that God is holy, that he has made us holy through Christ Jesus, and that he has called us to practical holiness in this world, and though it will make us strange corporately as a church and individually as persons, we're acceptable to him by the practical holiness through our new nature that he's given us. May God bless us to all three ends to glorify our holy God. Amen. Amen.